Material for the Brain, Conversations for Thinking Bodies. In this show, together with our guests, we explore different ways in which we can develop a meaningful relationship with our bodies and minds and respond to the current state of the culture in a quest for more integrated and embodied perspectives. Hello and welcome to the 33rd episode of Material for the Brain podcast. Before we start, I have a short announcement. We have just opened our application process for the next cycle of the Movement Lab study group programs. If you've been following our podcast for a while or if you're new here, I can assume that you are to some degree curious about your body-mind. And if you would like to take this curiosity to the next level, you might be interested in checking our yearly and half-yearly programs. We have many different programs that are around dance and embodiment from solo practice, contemporary dance, to partner work and contact improvisation, ensemble work, individual creation. We cultivate many different processes with our students. And again, you might be interested in checking it out. You can visit our website at movementlab.eu. And from there, you can follow the different study group programs that we have and see uh, if you're interested in joining this journey. Okay, and let's dive now into the episode. My guest for today is Asha Shirbakova, who is a scientist and a movements educator. Asha holds a Master of Science in Human Genetics and a PhD in Biotechnology. She has been involved in projects related to the effect of stress on learning and memory. And currently, she is studying the pro-cognitive effects of medium-chain triglycerides. Beside her scientific research, she is a co-developer of the BaseWorks method in which she is focused on understanding the function of brain areas that participate in both movement and cognitive tasks, and the crossover between language and movement. Asha is a real movement nerd, and her curiosity towards both theoretical and experiential knowledge is really admire- admirable. In our conversation, we talked about her recovery from epilepsy through dance training and how her background as a biologist affected the approach she took. We also talked about how our different stories and ideas affect our pedagogical approach and the actual experiences we have in movement. We talked lengthily about body awareness and explore where different modalities we are using comes together and what are the differences in our understanding of this topic. It was a pleasurable conversation and I learned a lot from her. I hope you will enjoy it. And without further ado, here is Asha Shirbakova. Hello, Asha. How are you? Welcome to my podcast. Hi, Matan. Um, I'm great. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Long time no see, really. Yes, been many years since we've seen in person. Yes, um, and virtually also quite a while, I feel. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, where do I meet you? Uh, I know you've, you've moved from Japan to Canada. Well, what are you doing nowadays? Where do uh, I catch you? Yes, so um, since uh, the pandemic, basically, we're based in Canada. And uh, first it was Eastern Canada, and now we're in Montreal. And what, what are you doing nowadays? Um, working. <laughs> working? Yes, working. Mm-hmm. And um, tell me a little bit more. I haven't seen for so long. I'm curious a bit, like, what, what well, are you doing? 
right, yeah. So, well, I guess at this point, the location doesn't really matter, right? So uh, I work with Baseworks. That's my mm. main job, I guess. And I have my side projects, but they all are more or less can be done remotely because it's mainly writing, reading, you know, study. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. Um, I think we will probably be touching on most of it as we go mm. through today's conversation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and have you adjust to life on the other side of the planet? That's a good question. <laughs> well, not really, I guess. It's just very, very different because I, uh, I lived in Japan for almost 10 years. So uh, moving to Canada was a bit of a culture shock in some ways. Mm. There's much more space here. Also, I guess maybe the topic of space is going to come up a lot in our today's conversation. Mm. So just, you know, uh, people have much more personal space. The, the rooms are bigger. Everything is so much bigger. So that was a big shock. And uh, then, of course, culturally, it's very, very different. Interpersonal relationships, you know, topics that matter uh, to people, what people talk about, just, um, I don't know, the bodies, like everything is very different. But um, at the same time, because, you know, in, in many ways, my work is in my head or just in whatever space, small space I'm occupying. So in that sense, even though, you know, what's outside the window uh, has changed, but at the same time, just, you know, the work just moves uh, somewhere and there's not very much effect on it, I would say. Mm. Yeah, but uh, before Japan, where were you living? Uh, Russia. So like weather-wise, is it kind of like Canada, good memories yeah. of home or it's it? Uh... I wouldn't say that it's memories of home. Uh, well, first of all, I'm not the kind of person to be, you know, like, um, I don't know. Not, in Japanese, we say natsukashi, like when you miss something. Mm. I don't really miss things. So it's not like, you know, the Canadian weather, but even though it's very similar to the type of weather that I was used to when I was a child. I don't know. I don't experience, experience it as a similarity. It's just maybe I'm used to cold, so that's good. Mm. But I don't know. It doesn't bring any memories uh, okay. of childhood. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, I would just imagine for me, it's such a big factor. So every time I'm in a, I know when I'm traveling in some climate that reminds me of Israel, I get like, ah, something kind of tingles. Interesting. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's a personal sensitivity. Uh, okay. Uh, maybe before we dive into all the things I want to discuss with you, and there's mm -hmm. a lot, maybe you can introduce yourself to the, um, to the audience, like what are what are you doing? What is base work? Shortly, uh, what other expertise you you have? You're you're coming from. I mean, maybe it's just good to mention that mm -hmm. Patrick Oancia, your partner, uh, and he's also been on the podcast, and uh, you're collaborating. And I wanted to have also your voice and your perspective in the podcast, mm -hmm. just kind of to bring the audience with us. So yeah, sure. please t take us into your story. Okay, I'll try to be short. <laughs> okay, anyway. Well, take your uh, time. <laughs> okay, anyway, but it's still, I need to kind of structure it because depending on how I structure it, it can go in different directions. But anyway, um, yeah, my name is Asha Sherbakova. And even though everybody says Asha, it's actually Asa. It's pronounced differently. It doesn't really matter. But as you spell it, it's A-S-I-A, -A, you know, like Asia. Uh, and actually, I think that the fact that my name is spelled as A-S-I-A -S -S -I -A 
probably has partially shaped my interests in life. So it's kind of like a, a background story that I constantly feel that my name is Asia in some ways. So mm. I was born in Russia and I lived for like 25 years. I guess the first 25 years of my life I uh, lived in Russia. Um, my education is, as I say, broad spectrum biology. I majored in genetics, but in Russia, when you study biology, it doesn't matter what your major is, but you study all biology, like everything, plus some well, chemistry, physics, whatever. Uh, and uh, actually, we even had a course on biblical plants where we had to study, uh, well, like the Bible, and we had an application which was in Hebrew, and we had to make presentations half in Hebrew, uh, you know, about like botanical stuff that appears in the Bible. And I'm wondering, can you guess which word in the Bible related to plants appears the most? Wow, oh, you caught me off guard with my <laughs> ignorance towards the Bible. No, what, uh, what is the word? So the word is etz. Etz. Ah, yes. okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, tree. It, tree, yeah. yeah so makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes sense, yes. But anyway, yeah. so that's just kind of an illustration, you know, how just in, in how many directions our education goes when we study biology. And for me, that education, I guess, um, really formed how I see the world a lot because after the first two years of our education, you basically, you know, you know everything. Well, a bit maybe, but about everything. So you look around, you see a tree, you know its name, uh, you know, you can imagine a cross section, you can imagine every cell, you know how, you know, the trees formed from a seed, you know, you can imagine the genes and proteins. And then you can also imagine this tree as a part of an ecosystem. You can imagine what was at this place 100 years ago, what's going to be 100 years from now. You can imagine, you know, the weather, how the weather is connected to the earth and organisms inside earth. So it's it's really beautiful and powerful when they feed you all this information and you have this illusion that you know everything, although obviously it's not everything, but at least it gives you this uh, feeling that there are no completely like black spots. You know, when you look around, you have an idea about almost everything in nature. So first of all, because of this education, I always, well, not always, but from some point, you know, I had this. I don't know, just fascination with how intricated life is. And I guess the reason why I chose genetics was because I wanted to understand life, the phenomenon of life. And when I was young, I thought that the genetics was the answer to everything. And then later, I guess I started to shift more to neuroscience because uh, for a living organism, you are born with the same genes, you know, as you go on. Of course, there's epigenetics, but like whatever, let's not about talk about it today. But uh, what actually matters much more throughout a life of a living organism is how the experiences shape, you know, whatever was like created based on the genetic information that we have. And uh, I guess as the years went by, I got interested much more in the nervous system and also when I another so another thing that I need to mention, which is really has affected like what I'm doing right now, my perspective and so on, is that uh, I do have uh, epilepsy, kind uh, of a very strange type. It's um, I usually say it's temporal lobe epilepsy, but it's more like a parietal lobe epilepsy. So like 
in this part of my brain sometimes something doesn't work really well and uh when i have seizures i don't like completely lose consciousness but it gets affected i think it starts here and then it spreads so i don't lose consciousness but i experience a lot of very uh strange uh, changes of my normal experience, which are specifically related to the sense of agency, you know, the sense of how much um, I can control my muscles and um, like what I can do, how volition works. And um, because I had those experiences recurrently, so I do have like a lot of information, you know, from um, memories and it, uh, so there are certain patterns, it happens over and over again. And uh, I got a lot of information, you know, about, like, I have normal experience, then I have a seizure experience, right? And those two experiences, I can compare them, right? And then there's certain function, and that function will change, right? So that is, for me, an additional source of information about how the nervous system works. And obviously, because it's my experience, and also because, ultimately, it's, sometimes it interferes with, you know, my work, my relationships with people, so I want to prevent you know seizures from occurring so it's a very strong motivation so it both is an inspiration and also just you know necessity out of necessity i guess that uh pushed me even more towards trying to understand how the nervous system works and the uh mental health you know which factors affect mental health brain health and so on and also mm, Okay, so anyway, so that, that is a very, very strong kind of forming factor for me. Then I moved to Japan uh, when I was maybe, I don't know, I don't remember, like 24, 25. And the main reason to move there was to do my PhD because I didn't want to do it in Russia. So I just had to go somewhere. And because of my interest in Asia, remember my name is ASIA. So I wanted to go somewhere in Asia and um, I thought it would be better to go to a country where I can speak the language, which meant either English or Japanese, because at that point I already knew Japanese to a certain extent. And I just found a place where they gave me scholarship and uh, I went there. So the topic was interested. And then I spent first four years in Japan doing my PhD. And then after that, because anyway, okay, so... <laughs> The place where I was doing and the whole environment, you know, of how it was happening. That's also quite important, I guess, to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. So I uh, was at a university which was located in the mountains, in Kyoto. It was in Kyoto and like really deep uh, in the north of Kyoto in the mountains. And I worked a lot basically, you know, in a dark lab uh, completely alone so sometimes throughout the day I wouldn't even see like one person somehow so on certain days I saw more animals than people and I lived on a mountain which was called Koyama which is spelled as Kamiyama and Kami is the word for spirit in Japan the same uh, in Japanese the same word as God but in Japanese culture Kami is not like one God but those are spirits, Kamiya spirits, which live everywhere. So I lived on this mountain, which is the spirit mountain. And you have wild boar, you have deer, you have uh, monkeys there. So sometimes I see more of those creatures than I see people. So there's a lot of isolation, but basically like four years of isolation. And uh, then, you know, interaction with Japanese culture. I got interested in Buddhism, obviously. In Kyoto, because there's hundreds of temples, it's very difficult not to get interested in Buddhism, I guess. And uh, also, at some point, 
my epilepsy got really bad to the point where there was a chance that I would just have to just finish my studies prematurely without graduating. And at that point, I was going to see a doctor. The doctor would just prescribe the pills and the pills were making it even worse. This was not helping. So there was a point in my life where I had to do something. Like I could feel it really well at the point that I'm the only person who can do something about it. Nobody else cares ultimately. And the doctor has no idea how to help me. And this is where I really turned to, like I thought, I, I know so much about biology. There must be a way to somehow help my brain, which is just completely dysfunctional. And it was at some point dysfunctional to a point where I would wake up and then for maybe four or five hours, I cannot get up from bed because I don't even realize that I need to realize that I need to get up from bed, you know? So like the agency is just completely gone. I could react to things, but when I live alone in my room, I open my eyes and then there is no stimulus to somehow stimulate me to get up from bed. And um, at that point, I thought that uh, to get me or my brain or whatever out of that situation, I just need to stimulate it as much as, as possible with something that I've never done before. And I thought, what is it that is the most stimulating thing for a brain? And I thought, some kind of a new sensory motor learning. So when you uh, learn movements and maybe in such a way that is like completely, completely new. So from that point, I made myself uh, start doing very various physical activities. I started dancing and I got interested in the effects that it had on the nervous system. And maybe in just like three or four months, my epilepsy was just completely cured. So it was just absolutely amazing. But uh, I uh, had a lot of... What kind of dancing have you done then? Ah, okay. That's, a, that's also a very good question. So I chose belly dancing. And belly the, dancing. Reason, the reason why, and also the reason why I chose the belly dancing, um, it's also interesting. And also that intuition that I had about belly dancing, it's I'm still trying to understand why, why I chose that. Uh, the way I was explaining it to myself at that point was because I felt that um, my image of my body was that it was like dark fog, you know, there was almost nothing. It's hard to explain, but I couldn't feel anything. It was just, I was almost not existing. And the only place in my body where I had just a bit of feeling that something was existing were, was around my hips. And I thought that if I have just a bit of energy there, and I'm just overall so low on energy, I want to try to use that the you know the only resource that I have right now, and I'm going to start from there. So that is how I was thinking about that at that moment. But now I'm when I'm looking back and I'm trying to kind of analyze what happened, I think that uh, what was really important in belly dancing and also what I feel how it works in, in bass works, again, I'm going to talk about it later, I guess, is that you have the axis uh, and the control of the muscles which are controlling, you know, the axis of your body and makes you feel what's happening with that axis. I feel that that is something that was not present in my movement vocabulary at all. And I think it it is often absent for many people in their everyday movement vocabulary. And I think that that part was really, really, really stimulating for me. So for example, if I chose some other type of dance, I think it wouldn't be as stimulating. I, I feel. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. a, wait. So mm -hmm. 
I just have to kind of uh, absorb it. So, mm -hmm. so that was kind of Middle Eastern Arabic belly dancing classes in Japan. Yes, it's actually very, very popular in Japan. Wow, I uh, have no idea. It was, I guess, in Egyptian style, but uh, there is a... Actually, I'm not really that knowledgeable about the whole, you know, culture of belly dancing, but uh, there is this type of uh, belly dancing which is called tribal. Are you familiar with it? No. So tribal belly dancing is when you have many belly dancers dancing together, and it's a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, there is certain agreed upon uh, kind of general movements that if the movement is initiated, you know what the movement is going to be. And very often, women would dance like in a circle where there can be other formations. And then there is a person who is a leader. And a leader, like, for example, I don't know, I started like bringing my arm like this. And everybody else, when they see I started the movement, they know what the movement is going to be. And they repeat exactly the same movement. And even though there is a really, really tiny bit of um, delay... Okay. Still, for the group and also for those who are watching, it looks like everybody is moving in incomplete synchrony. So mm. it's very, very interesting. But of course, when you just uh, go and study it, even though it's a tribal belly dancing, most of the classes just, you know, drills of some basic movement and some choreography. But I think that particularly the tribal uh, aspect of belly dancing is very popular in Japan. But also Japanese people really like, uh, you know, like Bollywood dance and um, all that Eastern dance when you dress oh, it's up. It's interesting and... because I mean, for, I mean, I've, I've when I visited you guys in Japan, I was there for ten days, so mm -hmm. for a relatively short amount of time. But I had the feeling that, like, maybe the strongest impression I had about the culture that that it is designed to <laughs> minimize individual expression as much as possible. So, like, mm -hmm. that kind of physically, you know, people try to take the least amount of space when they're sitting and to take as little amount of space when they're interacting with somebody else and that the physical gestures are very codified they are not about you they are really about like a, that you're really a servant of a certain structure and it's surprise like it's very maybe from that perspective it's not that surprising that what the culture would you know like kind of misses or what is kind of being needed is this hyper expressive overly maybe even vul vulgar Bollywood style and, and belly dancing and but I'm 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 also curious to uh, to maybe dive a little bit uh, deeper like uh, uh, if you don't mind about the what you started to say about the the relation between the type of dance you've chosen and the effect that it had on your brain and of course you're just your case is just an anecdotal evidence but I'm still curious if you think that it had like to which degree you think that it really had to do something with the fact that belly dancing is and has its specific technical properties and pedagogic style, etc. Or to which degree it's just literally, you know, I could have done salsa that would mm -hmm. challenge your hip movement and you will figure mm -hmm. things or, I don't know, contact improvisation and you will be doing the same thing through tactile information and not through visual information. And you still like just the fact that you're being exposed to uh, as you say, like a new stimulus that will keep you keep your brain active. So, what's mm -hmm. your point of view on that? Okay, uh, there's actually a few things that I need to comment on in this question. One is that I guess I need to clarify that I guess 
my initial experience with belly dancing, also I was doing running, I was just, I changed my diet and so on. So those things, they helped to recover my like absolutely total disaster that I had with my brain function and it allowed me to continue with my studies and so on. But it was just recover what was lost, you know, or what was completely not working. But still there was a really, really big gap between how I felt in that, at that moment and how I feel right now. And there was a significant aspect of learning between that point and the point where I am right now. And I guess we will be talking about uh, that later. So um, when I was going to do that belly dancing class, there was a lot that I couldn't do, couldn't understand because I had some, I, I was lacking, I don't know, awareness, basic skills and so on. So it was helping me, but it was still not giving me, I didn't know how to extract certain things out of it that now I know that were probably very beneficial. So anyway, I think if I started, for example, belly dancing from scratch right now, my experience would be very different. But anyway, so I think yeah, right now, so, so retrospectively to talk about it makes no sense. But anyway, so to address the other points uh, in your uh, question, why, why I feel that it's different from some other types of dance and if I did something else, would it help me or not? And so on. Um, I feel that, and it's my, because I don't really read about dance, dance theory so much. Maybe what I'm saying, you know, like doesn't match how people, how normally talk about it. But my intuition, which is based on my experience and maybe understanding of biology a bit, is that many types of dance, the logic of dance is... Uh, manipulation of very distal points of space. So essentially, the movements, they can be conceptualized as, let's say, moving hands, elbows, like the head. And that doesn't touch the axis of the body. Because the muscles which control our movements, they're more distal muscles more proximal muscles so the muscles which are more away from the trunk and closer to the trunk generally speaking people especially who are not trained in any type of movement practice they have poor volitional control of their trunk muscles usually the posture you know certain adjustments like for example when i if i want to like turn back to grab something. I'm thinking about how I will bring my hand back to grab something. And my shoulders, my trunk, they will turn automatically. I don't need to think about it. It would be very unnatural, in fact, for them not to turn. And a lot of the movements of the body axis, they are more under automatic control than under volitional control. And so there is something which I feel about learning to consciously control the muscles of the trunk, which completely changes how you feel. And also the perception of the symmetry, um, changes the posture, it changes the perception of, um, I don't know, space, reality, just everything. So I feel that there is something very transformative specifically about types of training, which involve training of, you know, uh, well, specifically these muscles, which are very close to center. And many other types of dance, they don't really do it that much because you, if you want to bring, like, I don't know how to say, I th okay, I, I, think, I think I need to make it like a step back. 
um, to child development, probably, uh, and talk about something that is called circular reactions. You know, when a baby is born, they move like their arms like this, right? At first, it almost looks like they're a plant. So it doesn't look like an intentional movement. But eventually, they learn to associate certain points in their visual field with a particular reaching movement, right? And especially as a baby, you know, you don't need to know what your shoulder is doing, what your body is doing. You just need to know how to bring essentially like your hand to a certain point of space so that you can reach. And then the rest of our movements is just built upon that. And many dance moves, they can be conceptualized as essentially reaching to a certain point of space. And I don't know, again, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. And also maybe there are different approaches to this. But for example, when you learn choreography, you need to remember certain, you know, sequence of movements. So when you don't improvise, but when you have to actually remember a certain sequence so that you can perform the same sequence over and over again, you can think about the movements in the sequence in, in, in some ways in a conceptual way. Like, and also, when you, for example, when you kind of rehearse the sequence, you can rehearse it, not do the full, the full proper, the beautiful movements, but you can just like do kind of this type of stuff. Mark right? We call it to mark the, uh, the phrase. Okay, mark the phrase. Okay, cool. I, I need to remember that, to mark it, yeah. So you can mark it, but essentially it's like, okay, this point goes here, this point goes here, right? Like this point goes here, this point goes here. And then when you actually dance, this is where, you know, the rest of the body is going to move uh, to follow, you know, those basic, like kind of mm. like, uh, those basic marks. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. anyway yeah. So uh, do, you, do you think I was able to deliver this point to you right now, when I was talking about the difference in different types of dance, about the axis yeah, I mean, and like yeah. all this stuff. I mean, first of all, uh, mm -hmm. uh, without knowing so much about biology from a theoretical point of view, uh, but knowing a lot about the experiential um, learning of movement and dance, I would agree that I can teach somebody how to move their arms and legs relatively quickly, but mm -hmm. when it comes to taking somebody that comes without experience and starting to understand how to translate kinetic energy through the spine, it's always like a, pro a process that takes much more time. But that's the most essential thing to understand with the body in order to mm -hmm. be able to move functionally with grace. And, and I would say like that from my point of view, like the, the, the spine, and maybe we can also include in that kind of the the pelvis, which, is a, which has a direct attachment to the spine, are, are, are involved in every movement that you're doing, especially, and, and like whenever you want to generate force through your body, you have to mm -hmm. be, you have to connect the core to the limbs. So there's like, you know, like when you see somebody throws a ball and they are just using their arms, you see like this kind of mm -hmm. isolated, fragmented part of the body that doesn't cooperate with the, with the whole. And, and I think that it's, uh, so if that's the thing, so I would say like, you know, that there's many type of dance classes that could have been serving for the same purpose. Maybe not so much like kind of classical Western uh, ballet, because that's kind of very relatively rigid on the level of the spine and also like modern dance, many styles are not very good, but, but I would say like a lot of contemporary dance 
based technique will will have a lot to do with the spine but then it's also interesting what you said about being vertical because you know i i was wondering what would have happened for you if like the you know like if if you would be if you would have been taught how to move but doing it horizontally on the ground because you know like you, you have this kind of association of that position already to a certain challenge you know just you described just getting out of bed and functioning and the standing already kind of is already standing was sound at least that's how I, I, I what I hear from your description mm-hmm. that standing already served as some way of a, of a stimulus to your the brain and in contemporary dance there's a lot of uh, emphasis on reducing tension and moving at ease and spending a lot of time on the floor doing nothing so maybe it It also depends a little bit on the on the the specific teacher but but yeah that's a very interesting uh point but let's continue a little bit with your with, because i I cut the flow of your mm-hmm. of your telling us your biography and and I want to understand more so where like you know the gap between okay having those experiences and now working full time within let's say the field of embodiment that we will unpack mm-hmm. later but okay so we are mm-hmm. still in the belly class belly dance classes. the the seizures disappear what happens next yeah um yeah so next uh i almost uh yeah okay i don't really remember timeline like month to month but i graduated and because it was in japan and i spent four years like alone in the lab i wasn't sure what i wanted to do immediately after But I was sure that I don't want to spend, you know, another years doing a to- research on a topic that I'm not 100%, you know, like completely immersed in and uh, just be alone and not be around people. So and, and, and another thing is that I had uh, like in Japan, you have usually a phone contract, which is at least two years. And I was in the middle of my two year contract. So I couldn't just, if I had to leave Japan at that point, I would have to continue paying for another year of my phone. So that was also one of the decisive factors. But anyway, so I decided that I would uh, spend some time interacting with people and that I would uh, just find a job um, outside academia and just like figure it out. And uh, I found a job that required for me to move to Tokyo for at least training. So I was supposed to go there at least for six months. And then maybe I thought I would return to Kyoto area because my friends were there. But after I moved to Tokyo, within the first week, I met Patrick. And um, we just really connected uh, because... Um, of well he's like lifelong interest in movement and he was teaching movement and I was just at that point very interested to find a place where I could work on my with my body just because I couldn't figure out what exactly I was supposed to do because I reached a certain kind of like a ceiling a plateau of what I could do alone at home with just I don't know stretching or running I just couldn't figure out like what is the best training for me you know what what are the potential obtainable results which I should go towards you know so I needed some kind of like a framework and basics was a good framework and So okay, so I'll just uh, introduce baseworks a bit because maybe not everybody knows what baseworks is. Um, baseworks is um, a method, an, an approach to movement which Patrick Wansia deliv- uh, developed and he lived in Japan for 30 years and so he is uh, he has experience in he has been an athlete for most of his life to a certain extent and um, 
the method is incorporating influence from both various movement practices but also from physiotherapy uh, because a lot of it is about how to address like certain chronic conditions that Patrick have had from like various uh, sports related injuries and so on but anyway so it's a it's a approach to movement which you can essentially apply to any movement which can be done without momentum and the essence of it is that you need to engage almost all the muscles at the same time in any movement that you're performing and at the same time you need to introduce micro movements so like for example i can draw my shoulders down and i don't just like I did it and I, I just stopped and oh maybe I just continue doing it. But I kinda do really, really, really small movements. So it's a bit like, you know, like moving like this, but very, very small amplitude. And also while you're doing this, your attention needs to be allocated to many strategic points across the body, and you have to track the movement of all those points precisely in space so those three things so one is all the muscles activated at the same time are called distributed activation and then the micro movements added to distributed activation so that there is more kind of sensory feedback going up um, all the time yes and so and the third thing is um the attention allocation in space and well in in base works we would refer to it as a kind of combination of grid lines and symmetry principle and also we have a principle of, of fixing separating isolating which is kind of a mixture of this attention allocation and also doing the movements sequentially so you don't allow the body to do what it's used to do to move like the whole body moving at the same time but you really really separate like almost in a robotic way you only move one joint at a time like really 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 sequentially and it's uh, so it's a, in a way it's a very rigid system uh, in, in a way that you really once you understand the principles you you can really follow them it's very very clear what you're supposed to do so um i'm very good with structure you know so if i understand what i'm supposed to do i'm just going to be doing that uh, if i have clear goals and so i started trying base works and immediately after just i don't know just a couple of weeks i started noticing uh, sensory changes in my body and that was really really interesting so like for example and I don't re I remember the exact timeline like, like was it three weeks or five weeks fortunately I, I didn't make note of that but I could sometimes feel that like I wake up and then I notice that a certain part of my body moved like for example this much so for example what I used to experience as just my back it felt like maybe I have just like this you know flat sensation on my back what happens is that now it separated like this and I have two strips of sensation and it's not just you know I had a sensation which was like this wide for example and now I have like two strips of sensation but it feels like somebody opened my back and moved it out like this so what I remember from yesterday that I felt like for example was here now it feels like it's here and I experienced that type of stuff several times with different parts of my body and that just really made me 
ask the question, how does it work? How is it computationally, you know, implemented in the brain that like, okay, I can understand that maybe through using the muscles in a new way, I acquire new patterns of how I can control them, right? But why would I feel that, you know, a certain sensation moves on the surface of my body. So that means that there should be at least like two maps which are interacting somehow. So I guess uh, those sensations, uh, those changes in the patterns of sensations, uh, they were one of the first uh, things that got me really, really interested in base works. So I continued doing it. And um, because I was so interested and because of my background, eventually uh, Patrick suggested that I start working for base works. I did. And uh, well, I have been continuing to work uh, on it ever since. And uh, one of my, uh, like, okay, so. My job for Baseworks, like the main thing that I'm doing for Baseworks, um, is that I am trying to reverse engineer it. So this is like what I can do for Baseworks. You know, as my as my job, I'm trying to uh, explain how certain applications work. Because sometimes people think, like for example, you know, um, in a class there are certain instructions. Many people, well, I don't know what the proportion is. Okay, some people they will not follow them because they discard them as unnecessary. And it takes time to explain why certain instructions are very, very important, right? So if I could explain, for example, why this is important, it's there's more chance that more people are going to be do it from the very, very start, right? So this is a very important point. But also uh, from my perspective, what I get from Baseworks back for me, it's um, it's a learning experience because I get to experience all these changes in my body that eventually, and I think, okay, so that was maybe over the span of like two or three years, the way that my perception changed, my perception just of, and I guess also, okay, what does it mean? My perception changed. What, what do I mean by that? Um, the, my experience of how my body is in relation to space, like what part of, what part is my body, what part is space, like how the space is represented in my body, in my brain, like all kinds of that relationship, it completely changed over the span of maybe two or three years. And that made me think about space, how space is represented in the brain, how we are using this representation of space in the brain. And eventually it led me to uh, this idea that at least this is my experience and I'm trying to over and over just find some uh, proof and explanation you know for that what I feel is actually like valid somehow anyway so my feeling is that we use the same space or at least it's somehow very closely connected both to move and to solve other cognitive tasks so for example I feel that my um, spatial working memory has increased a lot and also, mm, I feel that with the ability to feel different points of the body, I can bend the mental space in my mind and it allows me to better understand spatial relationships. So, for example, in my case, because I really want to understand how the brain works in great detail, a big problem is that the brain structure is so complex that if you just look at the like just like you google some images and you try to build a 3d picture in your brain by looking at pictures it's very difficult and i really had so much trouble like all my life doing that and i feel that for example now that 
I can, when I bend my body, I have this, it's like a, I don't know, it's difficult to explain, but it's like a, like space is sticky. Like, and I have like this sticky sheath and it's my bending forward, like spiraling forward is a metaphor in some way, spatial metaphor or a special spatial template. It's, I don't know what word to use, but I imagine this sticky thing that I can bend it like this. And if there was a point here, 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 as I bend it, it's much easier to understand the relationships between these two points, because in the end, it's connected to this template, which is my body, because my body doesn't change like from day to day that much. So I can use my body as a template for spatial thinking. Yeah. And so anyway, so eventually, a lot of um, sensory changes and perceptual changes that I got from base works, they just continue feeding, 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 feeding uh, my um, kind of research uh, of all these space-related, movement-related topics. And so currently I'm super, super interested in non-motor functions of what is conventionally thought of as motor functions and uh, just how... I don't know how representation of space works and which kind of tasks use the represent representation of space. And ultimately, I guess, on a practical level, for example, um, uh, if a mathematician seriously does dancing or if a dancer seriously does mathematics, can it help, you know, like one um, from like, is there any transfer like that? Because I think that the answer to this question is not at all obvious. I mean, I think people who work in any kind of bodywork industry, they would be very happy to say, yes, yes, yeah, there is there is a relationship, yeah. But uh, I'm not sure if it's like 100% like that. I think it really depends on what type of training. So I think it's very important to eventually uh, have this goal to understand what exactly type of activity, what it does to the brain, you know, how you can use it so that people had better choice in relation to what they should be doing you know to support certain goals that they may have because everybody mm. has different goals okay super interesting i want to go back and ask certain things that are kind of maybe that i hear um one thing that i really hear in in your in you describing your history is a very strong sense of curiosity in everything that you're doing and and one thing that is also curious to me to hear is that you're both extremely curious on, let's say, on the realm of abstraction and cognitive knowledge. And at the same time, you're also drawn to experiential knowledge, which, which, which maybe nowadays it's something that I see more, but, but, uh, but I see a lot of people who start to become interested in, in body and movement that they just become obsessed about it and you know there's like that's it i found i found the the answers and it becomes kind of uh, almost religious you know but it seems that you still have a lot of interest in research cognitive research scientific research and i want to start maybe if you can share your perspective about the differences between experiential knowledge and cognitive knowledge in, in which way they they serve you in your in in your life and in in what you engage in and like do you have any like have you constructed a certain hierarchy of like what is useful when and what and like what is the relationship with for you between those two aspects of learning mm -hmm. 
Okay, so uh, abstract, like semantic knowledge and the experiential knowledge. Anyway, yeah, I think I understand your question. Again, it's, um, yeah, there's so many answers I could give to this question. Where do I start? So, okay, I'll start by giving you an analogy that I developed again over a few years, which for me, I guess, defines the crossover between these two different types of knowledge, the experiential knowledge and some kind of this cognitive, semantic, abstract knowledge. Because for me, they're very, very overlapped. And I think that I came to really feel that overlap very strongly, again, only recently, maybe um, in the few year, few years prior to now. So I call this to know something like you know your kitchen. Okay, so what does it mean to know something like I know my kitchen? Uh, in my kitchen, I, first of all, if I think about my kitchen, wherever I live, usually, you know, it takes some time to get used to it. But anyway, so at some point, I really know it really well. So there are no... Um, place which I have completely no idea what there is right I can imagine it and I in my mind I can imagine how I walk through it and um, I know more or less like I can visually see where things are and at the same time I also have certain uh, kind of sensory motor representations of my kitchen for example I have a drawer with cutlery and I know how much how fast I, I need to pull the drawer so that for example the tray the cutlery tray doesn't move very much and I can do it almost like with my eyes closed and that level of knowledge where nothing in the space is absent so every part of the space is filled with something and at the same time you can also interact with the system so you know where things are you can operate the space you know you can interact with the space so for me this metaphor is um something like a measuring device an analogy against which with which i can measure how much i know certain thing or about certain thing right so for example uh, well, because I'm a biologist and I have a lot of biological knowledge, um, to know something in biology, in my opinion, and especially now that I like, have this kind of analogy about this kitchen, is that you have to really imagine the things which you cannot see with the level of detail as if they were just happening around you. So in, you can maybe say that like, for example, if you're talking about molecular processes, you need to imagine that you're like so small, like smaller than the bacteria. And so like all these like molecules around you, they're gigantic. So you need to really see how they interact. But at the same time, if you're thinking about, I don't know, metabolism, you know, metabolic reactions, you also need to have this uh, sense that you know how the system works in a way that what if we add something to this system what if we affect this system like, you know what's going to happen and um so i feel that especially now i'm trying to kind of go to how how to apply what i'm saying right now uh, in relation to the movement related studies right um sometimes for example if i try to read papers which are related to i don't know muscular contraction or just i don't know just something something which has to do with physical practice sometimes uh they are 
talking about things which are just too far away from the experience, right? So they're just defining like certain molecular mechanisms, which is all right. So there is like a task, you have the experience, and then you are reading something which is completely like far away, there is a gap, right? You have to fill this gap with your imagination. This is all right, like I'm fine with this. This is obviously, this takes a lot of time. Sometimes you cannot do it. Sometimes you make mistakes and so on, whatever. But this is normal that because there are different levels of explanation and I don't know, or, or the different levels of just the scale of the processes. When I, when I move my body, it's a completely different scale than a molecular process, what's happening within a muscle fiber when a muscle fiber contracts. But still, trying to draw correlations, it's interesting, it needs to be done. But at the same time, sometimes uh, when you read some other studies, it feels like the person who wrote the paper, I don't know, I wouldn't say never move their body. Like, I don't know. It's, um, I also don't, um, I don't want really to criticize every, anybody because if I read somebody's paper, somebody, you know, spent a lot of time writing it and it's great that I can just like Google it and r read something that's there. But uh, the way that um, information, okay, so what I often notice and for me, like I've, I experience it's a frustration because as you said, I'm very curious, I want to know. So there are certain things I want to know. And when I'm searching for an answer and then over and over and over, I see, for example, a discussion and I kind of feel that it has to go here, but it goes in a completely different direction. And I experience it as a frustration. So it's a bit frustrating. But sometimes there, uh, there I feel that there is not enough overlap, you know? between trying to study what's actually going on and certain things they just get maybe really simplified of course partially it's um, because any techniques that we can use on people to measure what's going on for example in the brain um, they usually require that the person doesn't move you know the head at least has to be fixed and because of that, certain questions in this point for methodological reasons, they just cannot be asked. But at the same time, like sometimes you just read a discussion and it, like, you know, my like, kind of frustrated emotion that I have is that, I mean, does this person even has an experience, you know, of just like leaving and moving? Because sometimes what I read doesn't match my experience at all. And so this is very frustrating. and. Um, so partially, for example, partially, I feel that there is a lack of scientific concepts that are readily available to people who are actually like in this business of moving their body, who are actually professionals in it, and they have a, a database of their own experiences, you know, that, that they could compare with certain scientific knowledge. And there is not very much interaction between people who possess the scientific knowledge and people who move their bodies somehow so yeah, i feel it that feels this sometimes really like as, as if it's like we are kind of referring to the same thing but speaking such different languages that it's very difficult to bridge the gap and i would say like that uh that it leads me to kind of maybe the question is like what is the necessity what somebody who is very interested in movement from an experiential point of view can learn you think from a theoretical discussion on the body mm -hmm. 
that you would say that for that reason it's um it would be useful and i'll tell you a little bit maybe kind of uh, some background why i have this question because i have also changed my position on that several times in my life and uh, because when i when i got in contact with dance for me like it had nothing to do with research it was much more to do with just experience and certain things were they felt very fundamental to being a human so for example when i started dancing contact improvisation i remember the first time that somebody took my weight and it mm-hmm. felt for me like wow as if my body was waiting for that mm-hmm. experience and like oh wow i can rest and somebody can hold my head and it was like <gasps> such a big discovery even though it's just very simple action and And later, as I started da- studying dance professionally, so of course there was more like an invest dance started to serve as, as, a, as a platform for investigation. And at a certain point, I came across uh, the what is called the axis syllabus, which is a, a certain uh, uh, field of knowledge that evolved from the dance that attempted to look at biomechanics from an empirical point of view and analyze like what are the Let's say kind of more dangerous, and what are the more healthy ways of let's say maintaining the the integrity and the longevity of a dancer and there was a a lot of emphasis on cognitive knowledge and like you know like using theoretical knowledge as a mean to understand to to govern your experience mm-hmm. and there was a lot of ri- rights and wrongs and in the beginning it And maybe I can identify with you that like it gave me a very, very clear structure or almost like a operate like a ma- uh, operating manual to understand like what is right and what is wrong. and And it also felt very empowering that I can ha- have some kind of abstract idea of like why something would be more difficult or would feel like that or not like that in my body because I would have some kind of an, you know anatomical images in my brain while I, I would move. Uh, But then, at a certain point, it started to feel limiting for me when when it came to the idea of actually preventing injuries and understanding what is actually dangerous and healthy for my own body. And it felt for me like that there is a there is a certain area that cannot be penetrated through uh, cognitive ideas that needs to be visited through the experience. And that even though I could understand that somebody will tell me, "Look, in, in that position, your joint capsule has more tension, I would be able to uh, in, on the level of, of uh, sensation and, and direct experience to really tra- transform what is happening to me. And I, w- and, and I would argue, without n- being able to back it up cognitively with argument that You know that my body my, and, and my the integrity and the health of my body is not governed by ideas. You know, I can heal myself and I can also injure myself, and it has a lot to do with things that are very mysterious to us and are are not known yet to science. and And then it feels sometimes that uh, that I, and and that's why I'm curious to understand what is the benefit for you of having the ability to go into the realm of ideas. In order to understand your body, and where do you feel like it's, it, it becomes a limiting factor? Because again, like if we talk about the other side, I have many arguments why a scientist would benefit from moving. Mm-hmm. 
and and I want to hear from you like what what where do you feel that it helps you to um uh, to have this ability because again like when I think about those experiences like many time in this uh in this uh, kind of uh, when I had, when I went through this period uh, I would hear things like yeah you know like I would hear critics about dense instructions that are using imagination and and that would be in direct conflict to what we understand about anatomy and then you would say like hey that's dangerous because like you're using imagination but you're in conflict with reality and 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 nowadays i don't think that that, that's, that, that has that that's dangerous at all i think that other factors would contribute more to danger so but i'm curious to understand your perspective because i see that again like that you're still very passionate about your your research and i wonder if it's kind of just because of the position in base work and this process of uh, reverse engineering or you really feel that there is something that the mover can really understand better also about their experience from knowing certain things cognitively if you enjoyed the conversation so far and found it meaningful please consider to share the episode with others and to click the like button these small actions might seem meaningless but they are the fuel that helps the podcast project to move forward your attention and time is highly valued and we would love to hear more about the insights you might have from listening to this episode and please consider to subscribe to the channel to be notified for all future uploads. I, in some ways, I agree that maybe at this point, a scientist can learn more from a mover than a mover can learn from a scientist. If we were to try to, you know, like quantify it, like absolutely, especially if we had to design a training program where you just have, for example, 20 hours, how much, you know, can be learned in one direction and another direction. I think that right now the situation is is almost like what you're saying. And uh, what I'm trying to say is that I feel that partially the reason why the movement from the other side is because there is this lack of concepts which are specifically related to the actual experience. Uh, so I think that maybe in 50 years from now, hopefully it's going to be different. But right now it's still a big problem. Uh, for me, one of the motivations uh, that really uh, pushes me to continue looking for my answers is that I am in a dialogue with myself in the past. And right now, if I were to compare how I feel right now and how I felt in the past, I really like it much more the way it is right now. But if I had to explain to my past self, like, for example, why should you do like this type of training or like what, what you should be doing? Even when I talk to myself, I don't know what exactly should be what I have to say, you know, and that's like, I feel that it's a problem. So there is a lack of, I don't know, topics, concepts, whatever, like, I don't know what it is, but I'm just kind of trying to basically develop them at least for myself so that I, at least I have this closure that, you know, if I were to travel like in the past, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but anyway, I kind of feel that I, I have to do it at least for myself, but I hope that if I can do it for myself, I maybe somehow it, it is going to be also useful for other people as well. But uh, for example, as an example of something that I think that is actually relevant, it's and it's also related to I guess that uh, topic about like the the axis, you know, the symmetry being vertical as opposed to being horizontal. Um, for example, one of the things that 
if I were to pinpoint what is the biggest difference, how I feel right now and how I felt like I don't know, 10 years ago, is that I experience my body as being in a, like I have points, I can feel the points in my body where I really feel how they are located in space against each other. So for example, when I sit, I can really feel how my shoulders are, you know, how my spine is, how my pelvis is, how is how my ribcage is. And somehow being able to feel those points and their relationships to each other is very rewarding and interesting. It's entertaining. So for me, the experience of my normal posture when I'm not even moving, when I'm not doing anything, is interesting in itself. And um this is not how I felt like when I was much younger, because I would just, there would be no information, you know, from my body. I would be just thinking about something. And the experience of just being in space was not just a part of my experience. I wouldn't remember it as a memory, you know, it was just not something significant at all. And for example, when I walk, uh, I experience all these points as moving. And it's like music in space, because what is music? Music is when you have certain like frequencies, certain heights of certain notes. And as they move through time, there are certain patterns that you can, um, you can feel them. Maybe you can like write them and explain them if you are not trained in music notation and music theory, but still the brain somehow unconsciously interpret them. And so when I just walk or when I when I move somehow, or when I'm just performing some tasks, it's almost like music, like spatial music. So every, every little moment of my life, it's filled with this, with, I don't know how to explain it. Um, well, spatial music is the best, uh, you know, phrase that I can use to describe it. And it just feels very good. And I wish, you know, I had it earlier, but I didn't. And I think that what actually led to development of this type of sensitivity was the type of training that we did in Baseworks, where there is a very high attention to symmetry and consciously paying attention to different points of the body. And this is also... Um, so, okay, so there is this topic also about perception being a skill, right? Remember? Um, yeah. Anyway, so the percep perception is a skill. Basically, the idea is that um, your, mm, the granularity of how you can perceive whatever stimulus, it may, it may be in different channels. It can be in vision, it can be in hearing, it can be in some uh, sensory sensations. You only have the granularity that your body needs to perform its ongoing task. You won't have more because any organism adapts to its environment. And why would you have more than you need? You know, so for example, a muscle, if you don't load the muscle, it's not going to get bigger because why? There is no load applied to the muscle. It's just going to be minimally supporting function. So uh, similar to that, like for example, um, many people cannot really tell the difference precisely. Like you hear a note and you don't know what it is exactly, right? But if you train, you can develop the discrimination ability. Um, many people cannot, like for example, t tell... Uh, 
what shade of purple they're looking at. And like for some people, purple and blue and red, it's kind of like almost the same, right? Uh, but some people can see differences in shades. And again, you can train that with, uh, well, some training, right? And uh, I feel that there is a similar type of thing with the, the sensory perception related to the body. And um, I call it proprioceptive awareness. And actually, okay, so we, in BaseWorks, we have this framework of three types of body awareness, right? Where, which are interoceptive, proprioceptive, and spatial. And interoceptive is something that normally people understand when they say body awareness. Usually they would refer, if they don't know anything about body awareness, if they read any papers about body awareness, usually that will be the interoceptive awareness, awareness of the heartbeat, um, awareness of um, basically the autonomic nervous system, you know, everything related to stress, stress regulation, and so on. But proprioceptive awareness is related to the awareness of um, the muscular skeletal system, but as sensations, distinct sensations in the body. And then the third aspect is spatial awareness, which is actually, I think that's probably the trickiest topic. And I don't think I'm fully ready to talk about it in great detail because I still don't understand really a lot about it. But uh, generally, when people talk about spatial awareness, they think that it's, they conceptualize it as awareness of where body parts are in space. Like if you close your eyes, you still know like your vertical, like your arm is here, your arm is here. But it's uh, that type of awareness, awareness of where parts of the body are in space. It's a combination of, um, okay, it's a higher order, like treated, you know, kind of computed construct, uh, which is built on the sensation, not, no, sorry, not sensations, but sensory information, which is unconsciously going to the brain from the muscles and joints also vestibular system and also when your eyes are open visual system those three things they create your awareness of where the parts of the body are in space but you don't need to be consciously aware of it all the time and again i'm talking about the granularity like or sometimes we call it sensory resolution so uh, if you train a certain channel of awareness to increase like by tasks which require more discriminative ability than you have right now then you increase your sensory resolution so my argument is that increasing sensory resolution both spatial and proprioceptive feels good the result of it it just like you feel amazing all the time i mean of course sometimes there's problems stress whatever but just the experience of just being there and not even doing anything is just very interesting but also whenever like whenever you're doing something like i can like lift for example i'm lifting the this like glass of water and that type of experience when you um interacting with something it adds just so much more exciting additional information that you can extract patterns from that and it's just so amazing and um, so this is something that i definitely didn't have as a part of my ongoing experience when i was younger before i started doing any training and what i'm saying is that i think that if like this type of uh this topic the conceptually theoretically the existence of representation of um, awareness that nobody even talks about you know if that existed as a topic you know that could be used by people who 
for example, are professionals in teaching movement practice, because it will be much easier to explain to a person like what type of results they could potentially achieve if, if they do one practice or another practice. Mm. Okay, I see. So like kind of the, just by developing a certain discourse that, that emerges from certain cognitive realization, we are opening new possibilities of approaching the practice and feeding the experiential field with new perspective, if I kind of summarize what I understand. Is that what you meant? Uh, yes, yes, I would say so. Okay, so so uh, I, I want to feed uh, up. Uh, I mean, it leads me to one question that I don't know the answer. But it's just kind of a question. But I and I and I also want to really dive into talking about body awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, so what? Just as a comment, uh, when you were telling about the story of the healing and the belly dancing, it reminded me uh, a certain uh, uh, podcast that I started to follow recently that is called the Emerald. And in one of the episodes that. Um, that the, the podcast is kind of uh, uh, diving into mythic lens uh, of the human experience. And, and I played one episode to my students as part of our creation process. And the name of the episode is something like embodiment mean, uh, means to be turned apart and fly away, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then he, he brings that... Uh, perspective that like you don't need to have any discourse about embodiment and you can and you can still be extremely embodied individuals so that the discourse is like and, and you and it gives kind of the example of his uh, grandmother or like kind of like looking at the uh, different cultures that are more let's say in living in relation to the natural environment and giving them as an example that and that and that are being taken as an, as an example from Western perspective as, as a more embodied culture than the Western world. So, and, and when you were saying, and when you talked about your healing experience, it was, it's kind of was obvious for me that nobody in this belly dancing scene probably kind of would come and speak about the healing effect of belly dancing. You know, it would probably come from a very traditional, okay, it's like a traditional dance form. And, you know, maybe they will talk about the tradition and about the meanings, but nobody will speak about healing and but still the effect is there and then i was it kind of just made me to question like to which degree we you know like w to which degree is is that the case that we need that because for me because on my practice in my practice i use a lot of discourse and ideas in order to to pr present my content and i'm and i would say that i'm even hypercritical for teachers within the contemporary dance world that are just coming and teaching movement and they don't have any idea why they do what they do and they just kind of follow their likes and dislike and i was like hey why the hell are we doing it doesn't make sense but then again there is some you know like you know you can heal doing belly dancing without anybody have a discourse about healing in body in belly dancing and it still has the effect so so it's still an interesting thing to consider like to which degree you know things has like to which degree embodied practices has their, let's say, have their depth and 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 endless knowledge in regardless to our ability to 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 talk about them. And I'm not sure about it because you know one side of me really enjoy nerding about ideas, and on the other side I feel like sometimes it's not necessary at all. And yeah, I don't know how, what you think about that. 
Yeah, I think I understand what you mean, but I would compare it, um, like, let's say I'm just trying to think of an analogy. Like, okay, for example, let's say you are a restaurant chef. You are really good at cooking and people, when they eat your food, they enjoy, enjoy it so much. And also you are cooking in a really healthy way and so on, right? And you can say that, or food is just about enjoying and I enjoy it so much. And if you also enjoy my food, just come to my restaurant and eat my food, right? And that's all right. You know, there is nothing wrong with it. But there is, for example, a completely different question of governmental policies, you know, when, for example, when the tax money is being like directed at something, like what kind of um, new additional, um, I don't know, programs do we need to implement in schools, for example, you know, where the money should go, how should we structure what the society is doing? So the uh, importance of discourse, I feel that it's important to, it is very important to create those larger structures so that we can use the energy in the most efficient way. And another thing is that um, there are, so for example, um, my perspective, who whom I represent, like which type of people I represent, I would say that I represent people who are not doing any movement practices. They're doing some intellectual work, right? And they, uh, they are very interested in what they're doing. And so if you just uh, tell them, the story, which is currently, you know, like the story that, or if you just move your body, you're going to feel so amazing. You're going to be connected to other people and you will realize who you are. Those words, they don't capture at all, um, for example, the result that I have experienced, right? And they won't convince most people who, like, you cannot make a person who is not doing any type of movement practice to do that with that type of narrative. So, if if we really believe that it's important that more people move their body beyond just you know like walking running and like you know in a structured way like for example what you were saying that it's easy to teach a person like to move their hands but for them to learn how to control the kinetic energy it's like another different game and you need much more commitment right you need much more time you cannot really at this point it's very difficult to just tell everybody who is not doing those type of practices to do them, right? Well, how are you going to convince them? So I think that, yeah, this is why I feel that the, the discourse and creating conceptual frameworks is important because otherwise there's a lot of people who are completely outside. They have no idea. Yeah, no, I, I, with this, I, I have, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you in the sense that like, yeah, stories are important in the sense that uh, um, they are the way we understand life and kind of drives us towards drives and fuel our decision making processes but the the question that i have kind of for myself is like how do i know that the story i'm telling is is true mm -hmm. and true meaning that it has some alignment with reality because because i feel that like stories have the power also to change your reality and i'll give you one example that i i remember that uh, at a certain point i had this i had a a chance to be in in a workshop of uh, of one dance teacher that came from that kind of uh, uh, school that I've described for you, the Axis syllabus that that in my experience taught me a lot about uh, how to utilize kinetic energy and 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 I would say that till nowadays a lot of my uh, fundamental things in my teaching is still inspired from what I've learned. But uh, and and where kind of I started to move away is again in relation to to injury prevention. And, and I remember that 
uh, one core aspect in that uh, system. Uh, and again, I just take it as an example because you know I can give also some other example from from other uh, from other field. It's not really anything to do specifically with that. But I, I remember that the teacher had uh, uh, had very difficulty with doing movement that requires loading the the shoulder joint when he was in hyperflexion and 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 he had a very strong uh, conceptual like he had a very strong story that is being told for, in the pedagogy that he was uh, representing that that moving uh, stretching the like moving bones at the edge of the the range of motion and loading the joint capsule can be dangerous so he had already a story about danger and certain range of motion in his body and then we were staying after the workshop and then me and my friend, we just started to flip around a little bit. And then he looked at, at certain movements that I did. And it was like, there was part of him that was excited to try, but there was also some part of him that like, oh, but I know that that would be dangerous for my shoulder at the same time. And for me, like the story was, was actually, like the story about the danger for me was more uh, generating the potential catastrophe that he would... Uh, uh, might experience rather than the movement so what i'm trying to say is that like you know like we all tell ourselves stories but we don't always know if the stories that we are telling are correct you know and if they have you know some alignment with reality and it's very difficult to also falsify or like you know to really know what you're talking about <laughs> so mm -hmm. especially when when we're talking about things that are you know like it brings me to ask, to ask the question like, how do I know that what I'm experiencing have any similarity at all to what you experience, even if we can say, mm, I think I know what you're talking about, you know, like there's still a gap. And, and that's, a, that's a big problem for anybody who is interested in teaching movement and, you know, you have a certain philosophy or a certain idea about what you're doing. And, and I like to, to feed that kind of ambivalency for myself because, you know, like when I teach, I'm relatively confident and I can tell my stories relatively in a convincing way, but I still want to maintain this humility that, you know, I don't really know, you know, like there's so many things that I'm getting surprised by seeing the reaction of students. And, and how do you make sense of your own stories then? Like, do you feel that this is where like the, the scientific method is useful? Well, um, I, I resonate with the sense of responsibility. I personally am terrified you know to say anything because i'm so afraid that what i'm saying is wrong in some way but um i think it's all right like you know if you have good intentions and you believe something is true you just say that until you no longer believe that it's true and then you change your mind so i guess that flexibility is important i don't know how important it is to try to explain certain things when you teach movement like i don't know how to say but immediately in the classroom i really don't know how important it is i guess it depends on the teacher on the subject whatever like on your audience what they want and so on and sometimes uh, when i hear what certain people say how they explain what they do i feel that from my experience from what i know it's probably not correct but like whatever so i don't know i guess there's a lot of 
um, situations where maybe you also have heard other people say something and you thought, oh, maybe it's not correct. And this is also partially what's feeding maybe your fear of not saying something because maybe it's not correct. How do I know? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't really have any answer. I guess somebody has to decide on their own. And I personally, try, for myself, I work much more trying to actually say more than say less at this point because you know i'm really conditioned into not saying anything until i'm like 100 percent, 200 percent, 300 percent sure that this is really like how it is but it's not always possible to know yeah yeah well yeah, maybe we are coming from you know because of our very very different trainings and i think like to kind of state something in a scientific discussion is very different than to state something in an artistic discussion and i would say mm -hmm. like that as artists we are very there is a strong proclivity in wandering around mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know like just again because i feel like that we are much more involved in like phenomenological phenomenological research than mm -hmm. empirical research um but yeah i i, I Sorry, you want to respond? I... Yeah, sorry. I just, yeah, I just forgot. I actually wanted to uh, say something else when you said that. How do I know that my experience is exactly like your experience? Um, I think that's actually a very, very important question. And it's probably, our experience is probably very different. And this is also what we know from cognitive science that, well, for example, right now we're talking like we're in different parts of the world. So obviously our experience right now is very different. But if we were in the same room, like sitting next to each other, looking in the same direction, right? Like seeing more or less the same stuff still, our experience even in a very simple situation like sitting would be very different. Uh, and of course, when we're talking about more complex situations, the experience will be even more different. But it's also, like I wish there was more somehow mechanisms for, to actually know what other people's experience is because the sensory experience is essentially invisible, right? So for example, in dance, you can see how another person uh, moves and you can maybe even without understanding something in a conceptual way, somehow like in an embodied way, you can understand certain things by observing, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that you know what that person feels, right? So this question of how much can we actually, what is the overlap between my experience, your experience? I wish there was actually more discussion about that uh, because maybe if there was more discussion about that, we would actually know more about you know, this overlap. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm trying when I'm teaching, when I give people corrections, I am only correcting them on what I can observe empirically. So I will, I mean, again, maybe I'm here and there not doing what I'm saying now, but that's what I'm aiming for. I will never try to correct what you should experience. No, So like, mm -hmm. and I think that that's, or, or I will also not describe what you should experience. And that's something that I feel that is like very, very often is like happening in the dance world, maybe also in the yoga industry, like, you know, that somebody will tell something like, then we are lifting the arm and feel the ease in your chest. And I'm like, how the mm -hmm. hell do you know that I feel mm -hmm. ease in my chest? Maybe I feel like mm -hmm. a, a, a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of tension, but you can just tell me, lift your hand above your head and, and make sure that your shoulders are dropping down. That will be an instruction or... And then if I see a student, I will, again, I will never tell them like, hey, you, you should feel a bit more light, because I don't know, maybe they feel light even that they seem to me 
very heavy. And because I think that there is, especially as I've been teaching more and more beginners, and, and actually even before, I, um, like I, I've been also teaching in mixed crowd kind of most of my pedagogical career. So, so you see that like, especially for beginners, there is a big gap between the experience and the behavior. And I would say that that's for me dance training, you know, like kind of slowly to minimize the gap between what you experience and what you actually do. And that at a certain point when I'm dancing, I'm not that surprised anymore when I record myself on video. But that wasn't the case when I started dancing because when I started dancing, I would experience something and then I would look at the video and say like, oh my God, so different than what I experienced. And now I can almost, while I'm dancing, has certain represent, visual representation of mm -hmm. how would it look. So, so, it's, uh, so for me, that's a lot about what we do in, in dance. And okay, but I wanna, you know, like we've been talking for an hour and 25 minutes and I didn't ask you a single question from what I prepared. <laughs> There is something that I really want to... <laughs> to okay. talk to you about and that's the topic of body awareness and mm -hmm. I want to and I want to kind of maybe do a kind of a brainstorming and seeing the different perspective and terminologies that we are using and what can we learn from one another and first of all there is something that I started changing in the last few years that is that I don't say anymore body aware body awareness I say body mind awareness mm -hmm. as I'm trying to address through my, because of my experiences and also inspiration I took from uh, one individual called Nita Little uh, to address the, the dichotomy between the body and the mind. Because again, I, I feel like that from my experiential knowledge, I feel like that uh, minds cannot, you know, like minds are and bodies are, 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 are connected phenomenologically. It's not something that can, can, can be separated. And that there is a certain you like the the do you experience yourself through the body and maybe it being processed somewhere in the in the mind and and so that's one thing that I don't know if you agree and what's your point of view and the other thing is that I just want to break down a little bit that like you coined three different things that you consider under the umbrella of awareness and you said like uh, 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 around body awareness and you said like interoceptive awareness spatial awareness and the last thing was. Uh, proprioceptive uh, awareness proprioceptive awareness yeah and and when i talk about body mind awareness and and i and i and as so again something we are sharing is like looking at awareness as a multiplicity and not as a singular thing mm -hmm. and and i so i tell to to newcomers who joins the movement lab uh, that that the like the, the dance education in its essence is a process that helps you to cultivate a more refined body-mind awareness. And that body-mind awareness can be broken down to different focal points that you can kind of direct your attention. And one, and I'll give you a few examples and, mm -hmm. and then I'll, let's see where, how do you, would you process it through your own understanding of the term body awareness. So one thing would be to be aware of your thoughts, what's going on on that level, on your emotions, on your mindset, uh, so like kind of um, things that we maybe more associate with what we call the mind. Uh, you can be aware of the quality of your breath. You can be aware of the alignment of your body. You can be aware of the position of your body in relation to space. You can be aware of your muscle tone in different areas in the body. You can be aware of the... Um, 
your the way you're distributing your weight on the surface you're standing or lying so on the surface that supports you or maybe if you do partner work the surface could be another body uh, you can be um uh, what am i forgetting do i forget anything that uh, i wanted to mention uh, yeah and you can be aware of the uh, movement of kinetic energy through your body so these are different anchors that I have for my own students. And I don't know if from kind of the scientific perspective, you will say like, actually all of them are kind of the same, same system. And it's just, but, but I'm, I'm curious, like what, how, how would you make sense of the information I've shared with you? And how does it correlate and maybe also not correlate with how you understand the term body awareness and this mm -hmm. idea of the splitting between the body and the mind? It's a lot of things, but let's start somehow. Okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you were saying, I was trying to kind of keep track of everything that yeah. you're saying. So I'll try to address it. Okay. So um, about body-mind awareness, I think I can see why you would use that type of term or this kind of framework when you teach dance. Um, for me, I would... I usually would refrain from using the term body-mind or mind-body like written as one word uh, because from my perspective, if I had to like write body-mind as one word, I would have to add environment, like body-mind-environment, one word. Uh, and uh, I see that uh, in certain teaching frameworks, body-mind can be used as a useful concept. And just knowing you, I I can anticipate that probably you make good use of that concept and what you're teaching. So I think it's possible to make a, like a coherent system, which is actually useful, where you use body-mind as a concept. Uh, but although, you think it's still a construct. So you think that the reality is not a body-mind and it's not also yeah. body and mind, but it's okay. a body-mind environment? I think, um, I think that we chop environment whatever like whatever it is you know whatever it is where we are like i don't know uh, it's a separate question whether the world is really out there or it's not out there it's a completely yeah. different philosophical questions but you know whatever we perceive we chop it into concepts in different way and you can put different things together and in some ways it would make sense right and also a lot of what we do is related to how we interact with the environment so for example it's it makes sense that this is an object because i can kind of you know interact with it it wouldn't make sense to define as an object for example this plus like a space of air which is here right because it's it doesn't make any sense in terms of interaction why should i consider this part of air except for and not this you know as a part of this object because i can grab it it seems like an object to me anyway so i think that the concept of body mind may be useful in some contexts uh, but in uh, the way i think about it for example when i Okay, you mentioned that you can be aware of your thoughts, emotions, and so on. I would call it metacognitive awareness. So I would uh, separate it from body awareness. When I talk about body awareness, I think about being aware of something which is sensory, like coming from the outside in some way. Right, and then the metacognitive awareness will be more awareness of the mind. Of course, emotions things that emerge internally. Sorry, you would say like things that emerge internally. In this kind uh, yeah, of... that well, yes, that that are well, that are more kind of coming from the mind, I guess. So emotions, mm. 
will be something which is a bit of a crossover because very often people don't realize what kind of emotions they experience and um, a route towards better understanding your emotions is learning to notice the sensory signals associated with emotions like for example when you are scared maybe you feel something in the stomach or when you're angry maybe you feel activation in your hands or something like that right that's i think that's what is interceptive awareness um there is a book which is called how do you feel i think it's called by arthur craig where he uh, talks about it in great detail Mm, but you can also have certain emotions which exist more like cognitive constructs, but to keep track of your emotions, essentially not associating with the content of your mind, your thoughts, your emotions. If you can like drop the self and just observe whatever's happening in your head, in your cognitive world, I would call that metacognitive awareness. And I think this is probably what the skill that various types of Buddhist meditation teach. But you don't see the overlap, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, for my, and maybe that's kind of, an, again, mm-hmm. on the level of, of the experience, but like when I'm, and I, I'll just give the example of dancing, because I don't know, that's what I do most of the time. So when I'm dancing, and I hear a certain music, and mm-hmm. I have a certain like, emotional connection to the piece of music, and, and, and while I move suddenly, like, I feel a rush of sensation, but at the same time, I also can, so I can, I can direct my attention to the level of sensation, I feel like, oh, there's like a very strong sense of uh, tingling sensation in my chest. Or I can simply say like, wow, I'm very melancholic now hearing that song. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain overlap that for me, it's more like, where do I direct the attention rather than that, that kind of, that there is a certain, and I can see that also with like memory. I can see it also with imagination. Maybe the, the area that is the least triggering bodily response for me are thoughts mm-hmm. uh, unless the thoughts are already kind of anchored in a certain emotional context so this is where i would say like yeah maybe that kind of starts to depart into a different territory but uh, yeah what do you think about that i don't know yeah i think that very of course i mean our experience is usually integrated uh, and we experience everything at the same time. And of course, we can direct attention here or there, but certain things are defined through a combination of different modalities of awareness. So conceptually, I guess you wouldn't argue that hearing and seeing are two different things, like information enter through different channel, right? But certain experiences, uh, it's important, both the visual and Uh, auditory and maybe like sensory, sensory more aspect, they all may be important in a particular experience or memory or a perception of music. So something like dance is a very integrating experience or activity. And this is also why I think when when I had my period where I was really down, I thought that to do something like dance would actually engage the entire body mind i guess in that case i would use your term for that so it makes sense for certain activities and especially if you're talking about your holistic experience like as is so i guess that um the reason why i am trying to chop it you know into separate pieces is because what i'm trying to do is that i'm trying to identify the channels such as you know hearing and 
audition, you know, because we can be separately aware of like those two different types of information, modalities of information. And for me, the question is, are there identifiable parts of what we can refer to as body awareness? And this is what I'm trying to identify. And in our framework of the three types of body awareness, the two of them, I think they're pretty straightforward. So essentially the interoceptive awareness, and this is not, so this is not something that I came up with, that this has existed for like decades probably. That's the awareness of your autonomic nervous system as sensations and also your cardiovascular system. Essentially, it's like a constant feedback that you feel from your cardiovascular system, which is also kind of part of the autonomic nervous system because the radius of the blood vessels is controlled by the autonomic nervous system. And then the proprioceptive awareness, that is something which in base works, it's a very important notion to explain certain things, you know, to explain the effects, to explain why we do certain things. So normally people talk about proprioception. Right? Proprioception is the ability to extract sensory information from muscles and joints to calculate position of the body. But usually if you read a textbook about proprioception, it says that it actually occurs beyond our awareness. Because if you try to think, like if you just really like try to meditate, like, okay, so this is the position of my arm. How does the sensation or like whatever, like the information is coming, like, for example, the length of this muscle. Do I even know what is the length of the muscle? I have no idea. For example, from my personal experience, when I try to expect my experience, I cannot tell, for example, the percentage of how much muscle length increases and decreases when we are in full flexion or full extension of every particular muscle. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but if you try to think, like, for example, think about your... I don't know, like, like quadriceps, knee completely extended, knee completely flexed. What is the difference between the length of the quadriceps muscle? Like, I have no idea, you know, and I, I just cannot tell, like, by looking in my leg or just trying to kind of observe it. I don't know. But that information is essential to calculate the um, position of the body, right? So it's kind of unconscious. Uh, and when I'm talking about the proprioceptive awareness, this is the awareness of probably the same sensory signals which are making up part of the positional information of the body but awareness is conscious sensations so that's awareness like is uh, awareness of conscious sensations associated with the muscular skeletal system and for example you mentioned the kinetic energy i think kinetic energy is a very interesting example uh, and you also mentioned like the center of gravity, like you can feel where it is on the feet, right? So for example, uh, if you- uh, This is what I call like uh, um, uh, weight distribution. Awareness yeah, to weight, weight distribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. weight yeah. distribution, yes. So weight distribution, you can clearly feel it like on your feet or whatever you're using, like you can be on your arms or whatever, like whatever you're using as a base of support, but you can clearly feel it as a sensation and you can kind of feel how it moves over the base of support. I would call it proprioceptive awareness, but- because you're aware of the, but it's also partially skin, okay? So it's it's coming from the skin and probably partially it's coming from the muscles. But the kinetic energy, and here I don't know if it's exactly what you're talking about or not, but for example, I know sometimes that I can do like a certain movement in such, in such a way that I feel like a wave traveling through my body and it's actually a sensation. 
like for example i can like do certain movement and i feel that a wave went through and then for example it got stopped like at my chest right and i actually feel it as an identifiable physical sensation that wave traveling but at the same time it's also somewhat a spatial image because i imagine that wave almost like a ball of energy or whatever that just like goes up so it's a combination of it feels like something which is abstract i mean of course it's not okay so it's biomechanically kinematical right so we could probably write equations explaining how that wave travels whatever but we can also imagine it abstractly as as some sort of a point which makes certain trajectory in space so from that perspective i would call it spatial awareness belonging to the domain of spatial awareness but at the same time because i also have this identifiable sensation which is really pleasant like when you when you dance or move uh using momentum and then you like stop your body in a certain position and then like something like you know it it hits certain parts of your body it it's sensations it feels really really good so that part i think is proprioceptive so it's kind of like a combination i mean isn't it i mean if i'm trying to kind of see mm-hmm. the similarities in like yeah. the model that i presented to you so mm-hmm. for me everything kind of being governed by the ability to sense something you know like mm-hmm. sensation so like when yeah. i talk about weight distribution then again like there is a certain like okay i'm touching a surface there is a certain pressure due to my body being pulled by gravity and then it generates sensation. Or if mm-hmm. I talk about awareness to kinetic energy, so like there is, okay, I started to spiral and move around, and then there is, a, there is the kinetic force that affects my body and pulls mm-hmm. me in a certain direction, and again, generates sensation. Same thing about muscle tone. Okay, I'm contracting the, the muscle to a certain degree, and then there's different sensation. Or if I, if I drop, if I lose the tension, it will generate different sensation, more of a pulling sensation. Than a, mm-hmm. So it's all governed by the same thing, but I, I, but I feel like that when you talk about the experience of learning and the experience of movement when it really changes my experience if i'm doing um let's say brazilian jiu-jitsu where mm-hmm. uh, this is actually where maybe i would also agree with you that the discourse has a lot to do with uh, how we like how we can experience the practice so that's actually a good example to maybe point back to the initial thing we, we talked about so in brazilian jiu-jitsu most of the time I've seen people talk about weight distribution. So that's mm-hmm. the main technical parameters that people are referring to. And you don't see people talking a lot about muscle tone or awareness or, or like the quality of the breath or alignment. Sometimes, mm-hmm. but not that often. But constantly we talk about weight distribution because that's kind of, uh, for maybe it's kind of more. Uh, Maybe it originates from the practice, but maybe also mm-hmm. not. I, I didn't make up my mind about that. But then when I, when I go into a sparring practice and I cognitively decide that I'm just going to focus on the alignment of my pelvis, I have a mm-hmm. very, very different experience. And, and then mm-hmm. it's like it, it yields different results. And now I'm not saying that uh, I will not argue that I don't know that I know enough about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to say that it's better to focus on hip alignment than on than on a, a weight distribution, but it's obviously for me that that just by guiding your attention into something that originates in a in in something that is has certain different cognitive anchor, it really affects the actual experience, and then it will affect the learning because learning mm-hmm. 
when you let when you talk about experiential knowledge if you change the experience you change the output of the learning and then and then from and then yeah again like i don't know what what does the benefit of like clamping everything under one thing versus do dissecting them into very different parameters or, or different um you know like mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i uh i think i understand what you're talking about um different modalities i guess they would have uh certain measures that they pay a special attention to because it's also very important attention is a limited resource so you need to focus on what's most important right for example if i if i'm studying mathematics the professor is writing something on the blackboard the color is not so important right it's just like the shapes are more important right so maybe the way that brazilian jiu-jitsu is uh traditionally taught right now they pay the most attention to weight distribution right so it's not necessarily the best way it is uh, maybe it's good enough and maybe this is why it's taught like that maybe it's just enough and then the rest you just pick up from your own experience i think that the importance of dissecting is especially important for an introductory level for people who have low body awareness okay because um, from like purely applied perspective like for example me being for example aware when i have my ovulation is completely unrelated to how i can move my body you know like spatial awareness and awareness of whatever like happening in my stomach is just completely different they're different things so this is why it's important to separate so somebody can be really aware like of like one thing and another thing is just they're completely not aware but this one maybe is what you need actually to be able to perform a certain task so for example in base works we pay a lot of attention to the sensation of compression in the joints and for many people it's a complete surprise that that sensation actually has any practical relevance at all you know when they perform the movements to their longevity to the possibility of injury and so on right so for example for us that aspect of proprioceptive awareness is very important this is like one example but another thing is that um, i see many people who cannot tell um their positional information precisely like for example also what you mentioned that when you started dancing you think you are uh, you did something and then you look at the recording you actually did something else right and right now there's almost no error you when you watch the video you see that you did what you wanted to do right so that your ability to actually perceive what your body is doing right now is so much better than right now um the video matches what you were imagining, right? But for beginners, it's not necessarily the case. And uh, for that reason, knowing what to direct their information, uh, their attention to, I think is very important, right? And so distinguishing between different types of what you can possibly be aware of, where it is coming, what does it mean, how to identify it, and what is some kind of like a progression. So usually if you don't feel anything, and then here you like have super good awareness in this modality, what is the general progression of how you develop that awareness? And what do you need to do to develop that awareness? Where does it come from? Uh, yeah, I think it's very, very important. Mm. So so just for me to understand, so within the, 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 the modality that you're using, what would fall from 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 the technical parameters that i've shared into proprioceptive awareness so for sure the awareness of your limbs in space would fall no. into that category no that will be spatial no. spatial awareness. Awareness. sorry so yeah. the mm-hmm. muscle tone 
Muscle tone. Muscle tone will be proprioceptive organs as a sensation. Yes, if you yeah. feel it as a sensation, identifiable, localizable sensation that would be proprioceptive organs. So, so then, like weight distribution would fall into that category as a sensation that would be proprioceptive yeah. organs. Uh, alignment manifested as sensation. Same thing, no. I don't know if alignment. Um, what do you mean, alignment as a sensation? I mean, like when I think about what does it mean to be aware of your alignment is like to, again, to mini, to have a accurate representation of, uh, no, not representation, accurate interpretation of the sensation you experience mm -hmm. and what is the, um, in which physical position you are mm -hmm. actually. So, you know, like, again, for my father, who is a farmer, there mm -hmm. is a bit of a, of a gap because he has a very... Uh, like uh, his upper body is constantly in in certain amount of flexion, so for him, like standing straight, the the interpretation is more like mm -hmm. being in extension. Mm -hmm. So that would be for me like uh, awareness to alignment. I see. Yeah, uh, I would call. I understand what you mean. Yes, um, I would call it spatial awareness. But I think this is also where um, where the topic of awareness, which awareness, it sounds like. Is you're just perceiving what there is, right? I feel that in uh, this case, we are moving from sensory event to something which is sensory motor to the point where you cannot remote, remove the motor part of it. And um, that's uh, that's where... Can you a, unpack that for me a bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to... Mm. So this is where it's related to a skill. Like, for example, let's say, let's say I'm like holding my arms like this and I want to tilt without changing like this position right so for example as i tilt i want okay. for example this to remain in the I'll just position. describe it to the audience so imagine like you are lifting your arms and they are parallel to the ground and then you're tilting the spine to right or left and you want to maintain yes, the same relation of yeah the... i want to maintain the same relation of my uh like my arm in relation to the shoulder. So I want yeah. the like elbow, shoulder, shoulder, elbow to keep the same position. So as I tilt, I want them to remain still. This is yeah. it's a ton simple, but many people cannot do that. Like untrained people very often cannot do that. This uh, line of the shoulder will be broken. So uh, th this is not so much a question of lack of awareness where they don't have the skill to fix the arm in a certain position in relation to the body, and then while they move the spine to maintain that position, it's a skill problem, okay? And uh, of course, it's related to awareness, and through practicing a task of performing that movement, you can also develop the awareness of, you know, better, better understanding the position of where different parts of the body are in space, like more precisely reduce the error and so on. But um, it's still... Like, you cannot really separate, I feel, here, your ability to perceive and your ability to perform a certain movement. This is why I'm saying that it's related to skill. And this is also why, uh, conceptually, I think it's, this is where we need more frameworks to talk about it. Because in certain cases, we cannot separate perception and execution, right? And also skill, like, as a muscle memory, it's actually not a very easy topic to even think about it. Like, what is it exactly? Mm, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I lost my thought. I wanted to say something else, but I, I lost it.
No, no, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned something about the, the ability to differentiate between the, uh, the execution and the perception of an action. I mean, that's why, I mean, for me, that's why I, 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 there, I have a certain hierarchy of competency that I would say mm-hmm. like that if I introduce to students some exercise about uh, spatial awareness, I think that's what, what you will call spatial awareness, the, 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 the shape of the body in relation to where you're standing in the space, no? Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I would say like, okay, it's much easier to start doing exercise that you're not moving, but you're just holding a position and then kind of test yourself rather than doing it while you're already moving. Because again, like then, even though you can argue that like holding a position is an action similarly to moving but i would say like that the 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 presence of kinetic energy makes things more complicated than making it more easy yeah on average sure. maybe for some people it's more it's harder to move to stand still than to move but again like that's what i've been observing with the amount of student i've been teaching so so then it would be almost for me a different skill Okay, so um, I agree that for some people to maintain stillness is difficult because, yeah, anyway, so I agree with that. Um, if a certain position is biochemical, uh, sorry, not biochemically, biomechanical is easy to do, right? You're not falling. If it's, it's possible to perform something without falling, then a static position will be easier, I guess, than a moving position, just because there's no movement. And here, actually, uh, something that I want to mention is that, um, and it's it's a gigantic topic, so I don't think it's possible to talk about it in detail, but something that's important both in base works and like what I like dig into more and more in my uh, own research is how much of what we perceive as conscious in movement is actually conscious. Of course, there is like a philosophical argument that uh, nothing is conscious, okay? But if we just, this discussion makes no sense if we go to that extreme. So if we, if we accept that on a certain level of how we use the terminology, at least certain aspects of our experience are conscious, it certainly does feel that when we move, it's conscious, right? But at the same time, there's like a lot of experiments that you can like find so many uh, proof to this really disturbing idea that movement is actually either completely or largely unconscious. And it makes like, at first when you hear it, it just makes absolutely no sense. But if you try to actually understand what it means is that, so essentially the idea is that um, movement is a behavior. It's a, it's a goal-oriented behavior. So whenever you are moving, you want to achieve a certain goal. And you can think about it in such a way. Like, let's, for example, I'm here in this position right now. And I want to be in this position. Okay? So this position can be defined in a certain way. And this position can be defined in a certain way. And the act of movement is just basically going from this position through this position. And after the brain has programmed how to do that, after that is just handled completely automatically. And even though we can be kind of aware of that process going on, it's actually executed in a very automatic way. So, and from this perspective, when you are in a static position, 
This is a phase where you can actually be aware of the sensory signals that are coming in and you can accumulate information about what it is, what it means to be in this position. And then if you, for example, you can like do different positions and then you can have a certain idea of what it feels like to be in a certain position. But then when you start to move, then that's like a completely different thing because there you have to rely on your skills, on your like skills as they are right now. And also another thing about the motor system is that like, for example, when for vision, if you look at something, then you close your eyes, you almost have the picture that you were looking at, like in your memory, and you, you can almost feel it. Or for example, when you meet a person for the first time, you see their face, then you turn away, then you turn back, you, it doesn't look like a new person. Like there is certain continuity of visual experience. But with the motor system, if you try to really, really think about it and analyze it, like when I move my arms, like whatever, like when I move, there is no trace you know, of movement left, even though I understand that, of course, in dance, especially when you watch dance and when you do choreography, when you think about what people will perceive when they watch dance, when we visually perceive dance, of course, the trace is important. We consider like the lines which are being drawn by different parts of the body. But when we actually move, the experience of moving, if we think about it, it leaves no trace. So the motor system is designed to completely wipe out the result of the movement immediately. And uh, this is very important for movement education because people very often, uh, like novices, people who are not used to doing practices, they come to a class and they use their body in a way they're trying to adapt their everyday movement vocabulary to whatever task that you're presenting and it requires easily either like you need to really explicitly explain it uh, or just like training continuity so that they actually start to move in a completely different way and change their repertoire of uh, the movements so that they, they need to build new movement vocabulary so that when the movement actually occurs it because it always occurs in a more or less automatic way, you have to continuously train so that something that so that movements don't get wiped out, but they get saved as programs that can be executed uh, automatically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, maybe a, a lot of the a lot of the thing that you're saying, I process through again the lens of experience, and for me, like definitely there is a there is a trace for movement and. And that's the trajectory of the movement. So like movement always goes in a certain direction. There can be, you can generate movement that will go in opposition and then you will kind of get stuck. But like uh, maybe because of my fascination for the notion of flow, so I've been exploring a lot, what does it mean to be able to ride kinetic energy in a similar way that you would actually ride a, a, a mm -hmm. wave in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So so and then and then for sure I can feel the trace of a movement. So like because the you know like there is a certain trajectory in space and then the trajectory there will be some areas that the tra there will be a tail and there will be a, a head to the movement and then i could feel like okay i've initiated a certain movement and then i can feel what is the trace of it and where it appears in my body and i can track it down and i can switch the trace to become the the trajectory and vice versa but maybe it's a maybe it's just a you know, like kind of taking what you're saying and processing it through a very different lens. Um, well, 
Asha, I think I can keep speaking to you forever, <laughs> but it's two hours. And, yeah. and I think it's, it's maybe a good time to start wrapping the episode. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there is no doubt that we need to speak again. And from my point of view, I hope you're also interested to come again to the podcast at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Because, because I feel like that there is a, yeah, that there is a, it's good to hear somebody who comes from a, that was on one end is very dedicated to the exploration of what I will call or what would be described nowadays as embodiment, even though this word is kind of problematic and you already mentioned it in our, in our messaging that we have to kind of define it before we bring it up. But let's kind of leave it aside. And, but at the same time, that has like a very, very different history and, and into coming into that field and and like but again like for me i think one thing that i would say that i really feel in common with you is this kind of everlasting curiosity that keeps keeps fueling whatever i'm doing and it seems very much in resonance to to you and i just want to say before we wrap up is there anything that you would like to share with the audience about like possibility to interact with things that you are doing on the level of teaching base work articles papers things that people could share like where where people can find you i will leave everything that you're saying in the show notes so the audience mm-hmm. you don't need to remember anything but just please kind of guide people to possibility to keep interacting with you yeah uh yes yeah, so um i don't really have any personal like social networks maybe apart from from LinkedIn, which I don't use very much. So the best way to find me is to go to baseworks.com. And the best way, again, to find more about Baseworks and see what we're doing is to go to baseworks.com. So I guess that would be really the only main, you know, resource uh, to leave in the show notes. Because everything that we're doing or everything that I'm doing, I'm just doing through Baseworks. That's my platform. Uh, and uh, yeah, if I publish my thoughts on any of these topics that we were talking about here, I would probably be publishing it on Baseworks. So that will be the best resource, I guess. Yes. And I also want Madan to thank you for this opportunity. I actually really enjoy um, talking to you. And when I listen to your podcast, what I really like about your podcast is those moments when somebody says something and you're like, what exactly do you mean by that? <laughs> I really, really like those moments. Um, yeah, so I hope that we will have more chances to talk about. Yeah, and, and I also just want to share that, uh, uh, you know, like now I'm in the phase of uh, kind of building this uh, dance embodiment school mm-hmm. <laughs> in Vienna. And now we have like kind of an exciting phase where we are creating the infrastructure to be able to host more temporarily events so like because like most of our programs are like year-long programs or at least like half a year program and now we are building the infrastructure to host shorter things and i really hope that you and patrick would be able to come to vienna and also to share the physical practice that you're doing with the community of students here in vienna and to find the possibility for more exchange also in the studio 
because again, yeah. I'm, I'm, that, I'm... that would be very cool because also sometimes when I speak about this topic, sometimes people think, oh, it's too abstract, but it's actually mm. not abstract at all. And what I'm really interested in how these more abstract topics are actually connected to physical work and how you can actually feel or see like the reflection of this in actual uh, physical practice. And I can also just recommend from my own experience of practicing base work, which was in the time that I was in Japan and later on through the online platform that you have that is amazing. First of all, the content is amazing. The, the quality, I, every time I look at it and I compare it to the online content I'm generating, I feel like, oh my God, <laughs> I should shut down my online activities completely <laughs> because it's so beautiful. And and it was a really humbling experience for me to to practice base work like because of how it showed me like on which level or to which level I do lack the ability to to control and to um, operate within uh, these sets of limitation and and I think that it it uh, it it I would really recommend it for people to give it a try and I think you have some is there any kind of uh, content that people can access for free or something before they they kind of uh, uh, within the website that people can taste something that of what you're doing there um it's it's actually a good question uh we currently at the at this very moment i don't think we have any free trial on the platform but if any of your audience would like to try it out if they reach out to us on for example team at baseworks.com i'm sure we can figure something out Okay, cool. Because maybe it would be nice for people to have the opportunity mm-hmm. to, yeah, to experience some of the stuff you're doing. I will definitely send it also to my students and mm-hmm. and to see where the conversation and experience will keep spiraling. So yeah, again, thank you super for the for dedicating these two hours with me. And yeah, until the next time. Yeah, thank you so much for tolerating me for two hours. <laughs> yes, and yes, until next time. Thanks. It's been a big pleasure. Ciao, ciao. Mm-hmm. Bye. If you want to see more precious and insightful moments, make sure to check our short clips playlist. To see longer interviews, check out the full episode playlist just below it. And to be notified for all future videos, click the subscribe button and don't forget to hit the notification bell. See you on the next episode.